is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today we're talking about race and organizations and why so many organizations stay white. My guest today is Victor Ray from the University of Iowa. Victor recently published Why So Many Organizations Stay White in Harvard Business Review. And uh, today's special guest host, Jason Smith, he's a race and media scholar from George Mason University. Our discussion was recorded on April 17th, 2020. of organizational cultures is, is foundational to uh, the sociology of organizations, right? It's one of the first concepts you pick up in orgs class, and uh, it's a foundational concept in human resources management theory, right? Organizations have culture that much is undeniable. But for a very long time, those of us who studied organizations might not have thought of organizations in racialized terms, even though, you know, race uh, has a strong cultural component and, and it seems likely it's just escaped us and part of the reason might be uh, as our guest victor ray argues that people believe in the fallacy of uh, whites not having a race or whites being blind to race and perhaps many of us who've been studying organizations or leading organizations over past generations have not seen the race of the organization's that we observe and lead, just as we, as, as we white observers might not see race in ourselves. And so I thought that was a, a, a super interesting way of thinking about organizations. So we have Victor Ray. Victor, thank you very much for joining us today. Happy to be here again. And Jason Smith, a race and media scholar from uh, George Mason University. Thank you for joining us today, Jason. Thank you for having me. Jason, you want to just very quickly tell us about your work before we uh, get into it? Uh, in a nutshell, um, I wrapped up my dissertation about a year ago. So it looked at, you know, the Federal Communications Commission as an organization that is both raced and gendered. Um, so how does the FCC utilize diversity policies to promote inclusion um, for minorities and women within the media landscape? Amazing. So, Victor... You talk in Harvard Business Review of the fallacy that only people of color have race. Can you explain what you mean by that? So I think when we talk about race in sociology, a lot of times when you say I study race, people think that means you study black people yeah. or you study more broadly non-whites. Um, and I think of race and a number of folks think of race. Race is relational. And race is something that white folks have, right? And so when you talk about a lot of times, when I think about organizational theory and I think about people who study race in organizations, they're typically studying the process of, say, integration, right? Or the literature on ethnic minority businesses, right? But what is sort of left unspoken there is the idea is that mainstream organizations, and, and I've said this on Twitter, it's, a, it's an insight from critical race theory. There's a lot of times when people think they're not studying race, what they're actually studying is whiteness, right? What's actually left out there is whiteness. And I think a lot of organizational theory 
thinks it's not talking about race. It's not thinking about race. And what's left there is a giant unmarked category, right? And so if we think about this in terms of we can even think about this in terms of like how we run regressions, right? And so the dummy variable, right? The, the, the comparison variable is always the unmarked white category that we're comparing other other groups to, right? And so when, when you talk about the race variable in a regression, oftentimes that means black people or it means people of color, right? And so I wanted to talk about the what it means when we look at an organization and don't notice that the water we're swimming in is whiteness. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So start, start off, explain to us, you say that race is relational. Uh, what does that mean? It means that race, we only think of whiteness or blackness or any other sort of racial category in comparison to what it is not, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about Again, if we go back to what I was saying about how we study race Mm -hmm. and, you know, even if you think about like ASA and the sections, there's a section on racial and ethnic minorities, right? And that's a marked section, meaning everyone else doesn't need to be marked, meaning that that is sort of the category that we think of as just what is normal, natural, right? And what I am trying to do and folks have been trying to do in whiteness studies for a while is invert the lens and put the study of what we think of as problematize what we think of as the default category, right? What made it default? What kind of processes led to the creation of a college and university that we think of as just a college and university, right? So there was a a piece that came out a few weeks ago looking at land-grant universities, right? And they're not called necessary colonial universities or or settler colonial universities, but this this article, um, I can can find the article and we can put it in the the show notes. This article looked at all the land-grant universities and how they were formed with land stolen Uh, from Native American tribes, right? And so there's a race relation built into the very foundation of these organizations that gets erased and naturalized through historical processes that I think is, it's one, it's relational because who those universities have served and whose collective group interests over time they've entrenched, who they have distributed, who have they taken resources from and who they've distributed resources to to who they've facilitated upward mobility for, right? And who they've excluded, who the research conducted at those universities have oftentimes, if we look at sort of, you know, done experiments on, if we look at the work from folks like um, Washington and in, in the book Medical Apartheid, or problematize their languages, their cultures, their histories as sort of deviant, different, or something that needs to be controlled or, you know, absorbed through assimilation processes that are oftentimes carried out through the very organizations that they have displaced folks from their land with, right? And so it's trying to look at how the history of organizational theory has sort of elided or avoided those questions um, and instead focused on other questions. 
You know how I, I kind of took it or how I was trying to think of it. So uh, before I moved to the United States to go to graduate school, I was uh, an English teacher in Japan. Okay. And Japan was very interesting because before then I had equated what is modern with what I had seen in Europe and North America. Mm -hmm. And when I moved to Japan, I saw my first sort of deep exposure to a highly modern non-Western society. And the experience allowed me to differentiate behaviors that I assumed were modern, that were in fact European proclivities. I was able to conceptually distinguish between the two because some things were decidedly non-Western, but still, you know, reflective of a rich, scientifically advanced, well-ordered, developed, you know, as sort of the, the mindset conceptualized it in the 90s, right? We still have that. Yeah. Oh, developed versus yeah, undeveloped. Yeah. But the, my main point was, was that many, I think, uh, people here tend to equate what is dominant culture with what is objectively advanced or scientifically determined or has evolved is the most is the best way of doing things, not recognizing that it's a proclivity, like some of what we do is sort of just like a, a cultural proclivity that isn't really serving any practical purpose. It's just the way we are. It's like the difference between going to uh, New York and seeing that people are very assertive. And then going to like Minnesota, where you see people are very like more cordial or outwardly, like both are dispositions or traits. They're like characters, but neither of them are particularly productive or are necessary to work well, be productive, have a good organization. Is that is that making sense? That so I think the the. I think the parallel I would draw here, and so in the Harvard Business Review piece, I talked briefly about code switching, mm -hmm. and I talked briefly about the idea of what professional grooming standards are, okay? And so I think each of these are examples of a sort of white-normed, white-dominate white dominant assumption that is built into organizational processes. And so we can think of this in terms of, so, you know, we all have done um, job interviews in sociology or know of the process of job interviews in sociology in which you are really worried about getting candidates with good fit, right? Mm. And everyone just sort of like doesn't necessarily spell out what fit means, but we know that fit can be racially coded, it can be class coded, it can be gender coded, right? Mm. And so I think of things like the example of people with locks, um, being told they cannot wear that hairstyle. When I was doing my dissertation on race and gender in the military, the military had put out some new quote-unquote grooming standards for women that just so coincidentally happened to disallow hairstyles that black women tended to wear, right? And these were coded as sort of objective standards when in reality they're like very deeply cultural standards that get imposed on people of color or we can think about the idea of code switching where so in the harvard business review piece it was part of a symposium and there was a there was a prior piece in that symposium that talked about the famous image of barack obama um going from a white person to a black person and changing the way he greeted them from a handshake to a, a dapping them up in a very um 
it was a very clear example of code switching, mm. right? And how sort of the psychological pressures, or you, you hear oftentimes black folks talk about the white voice they use on the phone. And there's even research on this, right? Audit studies that show that if you have a black sounding voice, um, I believe it's from Doug Massey, that if you have a black sounding voice in a job interview, that you are less likely to get a callback, right? And so these kinds of things that are considered objective measures, right, are actually all coded white and can subtly or not so suddenly, subtly disadvantage people of color applying or trying to get work. Um, or even once they're hired, it can, you know, if people, you hear about people talking about so-called soft skills, can make it more difficult for you to move up the ladder, can make it more difficult for you to interact with clients, that kind of thing. And I think this also goes back to the relational component of right race and organizations where code switching is something that if a minority uh, group does or a person of color, they are doing that in relation to right that organization that is structuring around them versus me as a white person, I am not code switching because my relation to that organization is already sort of you know, accepted. So those organizational standards have gone down to that individual micro level on how I'm performing that day to day. I was thinking about this and I was wondering about this in terms of the, the rare white folks who work in predominantly black organizations and if they over time ended up code switching or if they ever felt the need to do that, right? Because I, I don't know that the kind of structural pressures that black folks are subject to would happen in the reverse. I mean, it's an empirical question, mm -hmm. but I think it would be interesting to see and to see how that is accepted. If, if black folks accept that kind of code switching from white folks, or if it's seen as inauthentic kind of like pandering, right? So mm -hmm. when, when politicians do this, um, I mean, so Barack Obama did it all the time, right? But when politicians do this, um, you know, they go, meet with Al Sharpton, <laughs> or they go speak at a black church, oftentimes that's considered pandering rather than a kind of code switching. I mean, I'm a white person at a majority non-white organization, although it doesn't have a dominant culture. It's like a United Nations type of thing. It's the City University of New York. It's pretty diverse. And uh, I would say, like, one is you cannot help but be influenced linguistically by the people who surround you and it can happen that you are exposed to sayings or you know conversational or linguistic sorts of turns of phrases that you hear from yeah. somebody who's outside of your ethnic group that you like and you reproduce and it becomes sort of part of a, a culturally polyglot organizational environment so you're going to see that you're going to see that because people just pick up and reproduce you know, just linguistic turns that they see around them. I, I wanted to ask you this uh, because I, I thought a lot about uh, the CUNY environment. Like, are there race, do you know of some really race neutral organizations and what do they look like? Like, I, I would consider CUNY to be, I mean, I, I, I'm white, so I'm very, I'm loath to be like, well, my organization doesn't see, see race. Uh, on the other hand, it's like a lot of the things, the aesthetic, things that you point to, like people can wear dreadlocks to CUNY and people, everybody, there's tons of accents and I don't think there's a pressure, but maybe I'm wrong about that at the organizational level. 
So this is really interesting to me because I actually started at the Borough of Manhattan Community College and started thinking about the differences in organizations when I transferred from that community college to Vassar, right? And so <laughs> when, I, when, I was at, when I was at that community college, it was the number one grantor of associate's degrees to African-Americans in the country. It had something like 69% of the students were on Pell Grants. And then I went to Vassar where none of those things were true or even comparable. And I think there were, I was there like right after 9-11. So we had, I think, 16,000 or so students stuffed in a building that was designed for eight. And then I went to Vassar and they had like a thousand acre campus, a thousand acre farm, 2,500 <laughs> upper middle-class white students yeah. and not, and just like what seemed comparatively limitless resources. And so on the one hand, I think that like, I'm so I think there are like, so we can ask what historical processes led to the difference in the creation of those two organizations, right? But then we can also think about, and I, I talked about this a little bit with you before we started taping today, the, the difference in how those two organizations were preparing folks for the future, right? So as soon as I got to Vassar, I was like, oh, like they're preparing people to run shit here, right? Mm -hmm. And so like at at the community college, um, a lot of us were already working. A lot of us were already working like full time and they were preparing us to, this is not a knock. I loved that place, right? Mm -hmm. And it set me on the trajectory, but the the structure of what they were forced to do, I mean, teachers were teaching classes of, nine classes a year right a five four load yeah. um with like 50 to 100 students a class and then i went to vassar and i had classes with four students yeah right and so it, it's not a knock but they were just preparing us for very very different places within the within the work hierarchy right and so yeah. although don't you see that as a conceit i see that as a total conceit I know so many unemployed Harvard graduates. You know, like it's it don't you oh, feel yeah, like but I would but I would say on average. I mean yes, of course. Right? Yeah, like of course we can point to outliers, right? Like so I am an outlier yeah. from BMCC, right? Like I am an outlier from BMCC. But yeah, the general process I think, like channels people, right? So we know education at a place like Vassar leads to different outcomes than education long-term, on average. Or is it a selection effect to who's coming in? I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not an education expert. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we, yeah, I think we do. I don't, I, I'm, I'm of a very firm belief that it's, I mean, it's, it's selection effect. And I know there are studies that claim to show some independent effect of these schools, but I'm always wondering about omitted variable bias and thinking, uh, it's just too many, you, a, a rich kid has, in America especially, has way too many non-school advantages going into that school over like the CUNY kids. So I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that, right? But I think that, I would also say that those advantages are often organizationally produced, right? Yeah. And to sort of bring this back to that organizational sort of analysis, right? Within sociology organizations, we have right, fields, right? We have multiple organizational spaces within 
a race quote-unquote neutral university right there are student groups student groups get favored provides other opportunities of leadership and so forth so those can i don't believe in a race neutral <laughs> organization yeah, right but let's say this this magical race neutral organization existed right with under yeah. it there will be sort of sub uh, organization spaces they are it also also exist alongside other organizational spaces which will not be race neutral and I just wanted to say this about race-neutral spaces. I think of race as a, a – I mean, we could talk about it as a field, but I think of it as, as, as sort of like an overarching structure, right? And so I think that when we say, can there be a race-neutral space, I feel like that is akin to asking, is there an organization free from dealing with capitalism, right? And – and there really isn't, right? So even organizations that choose to um, try and exempt themselves from some, you know, from the profit motive, they have to raise funds, right? right, right. They have to, they have, they are still in some ways subject to the broader logic of living under a capitalist right. economy. And I think race is a very similar thing. So there are organizations that do better, right? And so uh, one, so I studied the military for my dissertation, and in some ways, the military is actually better. Everyone has health insurance. Mm. Everyone has housing. Everyone of the same rank gets paid the same, right? Mm. Uh, the military selects on health. So there are certain things that the military is better, but there are still ways that the military reproduces some pretty egregious racial inequalities, both domestically and internationally, if we think about sort of the global racial order. And so when people, I feel like the idea is, is there a race neutral organization almost doesn't take the seriousness of race as a structure, like it doesn't see it as, as important or as, as structuring as I do. Well, I think, here, I, think, I think it's like this, right? We have two ideal types. There is the pure white organization that I also think probably doesn't exist, right? Like, and then there's the race-free organization that also doesn't exist. And when we're talking about where companies lie on a continuum, you have to, like, race, race neutral is more the, I'm thinking of it in terms of the ideal towards which leaders might aspire and want to push themselves down that path. You know what I mean? Okay. So this is also... I think about this question a lot, and I don't necessarily have a definitive answer. So one of the things, another thing that led me down this path, and I talk about this book all the time, is Charles Mills' Racial Contract. Mm -hmm. And in Charles Mills' subsequent work, he is really concerned with what he calls ideal theory in philosophy and sort of the real life deviations from that theory. And so one of the things that I, not necessarily so much in the Harvard Business Review piece, but in the ASR piece that it's based on, is I talk about, you know, the ideal type bureaucracy and that I think those ideal types are important for thinking about it as, as you, I think, are pointing to right now in the abstract perfect world. But I also don't like it when those ideal types sort of paper over the fact that, I mean, I would argue that, I, I, I may go so as far to argue is that the ideal type is actually white, right? <laughs> the ideal type neutral organization is often coded as white. And that 
what that does is, and so we could see this in folks like Eduardo Benito Silva, who's talked about historically black colleges and universities, or we could think of tribal colleges, why those are marked as not being able to be the ideal type, right? And so, so they're marked or they're seen as some kind of, of deviations from the ideal. You mean like how the ideal university couldn't be a historically black college? Exactly. Okay, I got you. Right? Yes. When people talk about sort of a neutral organization, they're talking about a white organization, right? And so I think um, also I would argue that Joan Acker's work, which also I sort of took as a, a sort of founding inspiration for the American Sociological Review piece, talks about this when she says that the, the abstract universal organization is actually male and abstract jobs and abstract workers are actually coded as male, right? And that she talks, she argues that this basic separation is built into the distinction between productive labor in the civilian labor market versus reproductive labor in the home, right? So I think that for most organizations, there's just a kind of racialized schema of what's normal that's coded as white and what's a deviation from that, right? And so when you think of a corporate executive, I doubt, or <laughs> I doubt that the first thing that pops into your mind is a black male, right? right? Or a black woman. And I think that that abstract ideal type helps hide or make natural the kind, it's a form of social construction that makes natural the racialized nature of organizations. Yeah, but like, for example, remember in the 80s org theory when everybody was all over Japanese management culture, right? And you had like, you, like, first of all, that's not white, right? That's Japanese. So it's like, it, 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 and it was definitely held up as an idea. I think there are some aspects of organizational culture that are not, that are, I, I don't know if it's intrinsic to race. Otherwise, why would whites be embracing it? Oh, I mean, I'm not saying every aspect of organizational culture is intrinsic to race. I'm saying every organization uses race. I, I said in reverse, uh, race is intrinsic to culture. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So... Every organization uses race in some way, right? Mm. If folks are interested, as many organizations claim they are, mm. in being more diverse, right? Mm. Being more open, then they need to recognize not just the idea of, oh, let's hire some more people of color, mm. but how the normal functioning of the organization could make those people of color's lives harder once those folks get there, right? Because what you see in the literature is, you know, there's evidence that folks who, I was thinking about this this morning as I was preparing. So there's oftentimes you hear about this in colleges and universities, right? So they hire a non-white candidate mm -hmm. and that non-white candidate comes to the university. They're excited to get started that non-white candidate immediately gets saddled with extra service work and put on a diversity committee, right? Mm -hmm. And so then there's evidence. So one, diversity, if the institution is interested in diversity, theoretically, anyone should be able to be on that committee, right? And do that sort of extra work. And two, 
there's evidence that folks who are non-white or women who engage in diversity work end up being punished for it. And the only folks who actually get benefits from it are white men, right? And so you end up creating a situation in which you force people into positions and then organizationally, and then punish them (laughs) for doing what you forced them to do, which is oftentimes outside of the basic job description, right? So when you get hired, yes, you have to do some service work, but nowhere is it written that as a person of color, the service work you must do is diversity work for the organization. I I was kind of understanding. So I, I was trying to differentiate my mind when I was preparing between white people exerting closure within an organization and the okay. organization itself being a white cultural system. Okay. So the difference would be you, let's, let's take a, uh, the difference is between imagine a bunch of white people took over like the Nissan corporation, which is neither white nor black, but it, you know, is a, a Japanese company. And then they were systematically privileging the white people who were employed in that, right? So it's like the cultural roots themselves in that scenario are not white, but rather there are white people who are manipulating the rules to benefit co-ethnics. The, what I liked about the racialized organization was that it was a cultural system and you had people saying, it's changing the way I'm talking. It's making me change the way I look. It is forcing me to adhere to standards that do not have to do with the job, but are rooted in aesthetic preferences and things like that. And that that is a situation where I was like, oh, there I can really imagine an organization being a white cultural system because it is in it is changing even the non-white participants who are participating in it. And it's not doing it for sort of applied purposes or practical purposes, but rather they're like aesthetic or sort of sort of ancillary uh, ancillary type of, uh, you know, behaviors or characteristics or things like that. Is that making sense? Am I making sense in this? Uh, so I think so. So I typically avoid talking about outside the U.S. because my expertise is in the U.S., right? And so, you know, in the in the ASR, the first footnote is like, I am talking largely about the U.S., but if enterprising graduate students want to go and see if this makes sense, I would be happy to uh, talk to you about that. Yeah. But I so I think in the U.S., my argument is that it's a bit of both, mm-hmm. right? So we can look at, you know, Non-white businesses, for the most part, are much more likely to fail. Mm -hmm. They're much less likely to be able to get resources. And, you know, I talk about Mersa Baradon's book on black banks, right? And so the, the whole idea of black capitalism in both black nationalism, but even among scholars. And what Baradon shows, I think, like very convincingly, is that it's kind of a pipe dream. And that is because the larger system itself of capitalism in the U.S., as soon as black companies get a little bit of success, they're usually bought out or taken over, right? And so I think that closure happens both in the formation of organizations, right? Who is part of the social network that's going to start an organization? And then, yeah, it also happens within organizations. And if we go back to the diversity example, um, you know, there's 
evidence that even diversity positions are kind of like cordoned off from the rest of the the quote unquote normal functionings of the organization. Right. And so like diversity programs are always interesting to me because they're always kind of like an implicit recognition that this is a white space. Mm. Right. Because they're acknowledging like, yeah, we actually probably have engaged in (laughs) um, this, this all white organization didn't end up this way by accident. Right. We have engaged in some form of discrimination either intentionally or not. But then, you know, the career trajectories of folks that get those jobs end up looking very different than the folks who end up in, quote unquote, the normal business functions of an organization. What do you tell business people when they're like, I already have an affirmative action office? What do you tell them? One, I tell them I'm not a business person. I'm a theorist. And so (laughs) it's not really my, (laughs) no, I mean, I, yeah. What do I tell them? I mean, I say this at the end of the Harvard business review piece and I'm, I'm really pessimistic about this stuff. Mm. Right. So a lot of things have been going you know, I have another piece on with Louise Seamster on sort of teleology and this sort of myth in the U.S. that things are always getting better along racial lines. And if you look at the data, a lot of stuff is stagnated or going oh. backwards, right? Huh. And the thing is, there's things – the reason I'm pessimistic about this stuff is there's things that we know – don't necessarily eradicate the racial inequality in organizations, but it decreases some of it, right? We are like running away from those things as a country, right? So you were talking about affirmative action. So, you know, Dan Hirschman and Ellen Berry have this paper on higher ed's retreat from diversity and affirmative action. It's a relentless attack. Yeah, I know. It's a relentless attack. attack. Yeah. there was a recent ASR, I'm forgetting the names, that show that like emerging organizations are, emerging firms are more segregated than firms that have been here for a while. So I think that like, one, we're running away from what we know works. I think that a lot of the things that are put into place are showpieces. They're not actually you know, intended to change the structure of the organization. So the the case I always think about here is Starbucks closing their businesses for a day, right? And and having trainings, right? Rather than saying, we're going to invest materially in all these neighborhoods we gentrified. And I also, or help to gentrify. And then, you know, I think this is about, it's about resources and commitment. And I don't see any of those things becoming, like really being forthcoming, right? We look at schools too. Like I talked about the colleges and universities, but elementary schools are more segregated than they've been at any point since prior to Brown v. Board, right? And so, and, you know, if we look at things like the test score gap, when integration was actually happening, the test score gap decreased a little bit, right? And then it rose again as schools resegregated. So I just don't have, outside of social movements or outside of movements for large-scale reparations, I'm not sure we could fix this stuff because it's about the unequal distribution of resources. I mean, to circle it back also to the HBR Harvard Business Review, you know, symposium, right? It's entitled, I got it right here. Scroll up. Towards a racially just workplace. Yeah, big, the big idea, advancing black leaders. And then Victor, yeah. your piece is second to last talking 
it's a very sociological argument, right? Race exists within structures, and it ends on the big idea, success comes from affirming your potential. And they're telling African-Americans to just repeat these self-affirmations to yourself to get through. <laughs> so this concept is, right, how do we change these things, at least if we're talking about maybe from a management or if you're in a business setting, it's almost like an ideological shift, right? It's not individualistic self-affirm your way through this, you know, what is the structure going to do, right, to reorganize, right? Is Starbucks just going to have classes? Or, you know, like you said, are they going to do a whole new shift and, right, reinvest in places that are located? Are they going to reinvest in their workforce to better educate them, give them resources to do these things? And I think that's, you know, at that sort of business managerial level, right, it's this ideological shift that needs to happen. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think affirmations are not going to cut it right yeah. and and i mean this is like i mean i was happy to be a part of the symposium but like that it verges on like a kind of self self-care but almost like a victim blaming yeah. thing right like you, you like that whole symposium is just shown how structural it is but i think i think that that is like a lot of a lot of structural analyses actually end on what individuals can do. And I tried really hard in my piece not to do that, right? So the editor was great, but the editor was like, I, I sent them the draft and the editor was like, yeah, but you don't have any solutions. And I was like, yeah, I don't, right? Like, <laughs> like I really don't have a solution to this. Um, but I was like, the biggest thing is, I think this is about material resources. And so that was, you know, I talk about in the piece, I talk about the Princeton Seminary doing like some form of reparations because I really think resources are the only thing that would shift this stuff. You did mention that. You did mention uh, it wasn't just aesthetic stuff. I remember thinking about how you were talking about organizations that were, they were more indifferent to the negative externalities of their operations on communities of color. And I thought that was pretty resonant. Yeah. So I think that that is... I mean, we could think about that in a whole bunch of ways, right? But we could think about like hospital mistreatment, which is like well documented. We can think about, I've wanted, I've never done it, but I've wanted to talk for, I wanted to write a piece for a long time about racialized externalities, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, the concept and economics of externalities in which you end up like getting a cost or benefit that you didn't pay for. And I was thinking about, again, this is a neutral concept, right? Like we think about externalities as something that are kind of shared broadly, right? So if we think about pollution, it's like the classic example of an externality that's kind of broadly shared and hurts everyone that businesses offload onto the general public. But we know that actually pollution is concentrated among communities of color way more than it is among white folks, right? And so I think, again, going back to Mills and the sort of like ideal theory versus how it actually plays out in the real world is important because we can, there's a lot of concepts like that, which we think of them as in sort of this neutral abstract terms. But as soon as we take one step down from that like pure area of thought, we're like, oh no, right? Like this really affects one group of people in a way that's just fundamentally different and more harmful for them. And we kind of erase that by thinking about it in these, these pure abstractions. Right. Maybe just before we say goodbye, can both of you maybe, if, if somebody's interested in the concept of a racialized 
organization or races in organization, what are the must-reads that you'd point people to? Own books allowed. Well, I had this right by me in case I needed <laughs> <case I> <laughs> it. So uh, Melissa Wooten, um, she edited a volume called Raced Organizations and the Organizing Process that came out in 2019. I luckily got it at ASA. Uh, I talked the lady down at the Emerald booth to uh, $35 instead of, you know, the $100 a hardback costs. But if it's available through your library, it's great. I mean, I think race and organization is still, it's sort of like a subfield that's developing, I think. And I think this book captures a lot of like current thinking on it and provides sort of a good structure for people to think through these things. You've been listening to The Annex, an academic sociology podcast. You can visit our show site at sociocast.org slash annex. We are on Twitter at Sociannex and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Laseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joseph Cohen. Thank you for listening.